Well, hey, good morning, uh, Life Point. Grateful to be with you. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor at our Delaware campus. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Luke chapter 16. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, the latter half of Luke 16. We've been in a series now we've been calling labels for uh, a number of weeks, a couple of months. We've read through the Gospel of Luke. We've prayed through the Gospel of Luke. We're focusing now on really sharing, right? We've talked about read and pray and share, sharing with someone uh, what it is that we've learned, praying and asking God for an opportunity uh, to share with somebody uh, who doesn't know Christ uh, the joy of knowing Christ and what Jesus has done for them, sharing with them what we've read through and what we've prayed through. We hope you're doing that, praying, God, will you give me an opportunity to share with someone else what it is I'm learning in the goodness of Christ. As we've gone through the label series, we've had a big idea, something we've said pretty much every week, and that is that the gospel calls us to a life above labels. Uh, one of the things that we see consistently in the gospel of Luke is Jesus associating with people who have been labeled negatively by the culture around them. And uh, what should cause us to pause is oftentimes that's the religious elites and the religious authorities, religious people doing the labeling, uh, calling people tax collector and sinner and leper, prostitute, unworthy, unclean. You shouldn't be around Jesus. And yet Jesus, the rabbi and teacher, as many people knew him, uh, is calling these people to himself, gathering them, they're gathering around him, he's eating with them and calling them to be his disciples. And so Jesus steps past those labels and says, no, 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 you come and you follow me. I didn't come for the people who think that they're righteous, I came for those who know that they're broken. Now this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, but before we read that, I want to give us some of the context, because I believe context is always important, and here uh, I think it's maybe particularly important. So right before this, Jesus tells another parable, the parable of the shrewd manager, which frankly is a bit confusing. Uh, I struggle with it a little bit, but this is how Jesus ends that parable and seemingly what he's trying to get, the point he's trying to get across. And I think it's important for setting up the next parable he tells. He says in verse 10 of Luke 16, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you if you've not been, excuse me, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. This is where he really drives it home. You cannot serve both God and money. One of those will dominate your life. You will love one and hate the other. And that was a Semitic way, a Hebrew expression. When you said love and hate, it was your love for this one is so much, so exceeds any other love that by comparison you hate it. So he's saying either the center of your life, the thing you treasure most will be God and his kingdom, or it will be money, things, worldly possessions, but it will not be both. The Pharisees, this is so important, verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money. So Luke tells us where they land on this. He says, while they're very religious and they follow the rules, they're hypocrites. They really love money. Which is why, when hearing all this, they were sneering at Jesus. They ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. You make a show of religion. But God knows your hearts. 
What people value highly, this ought to hit us as well, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. There's this theme all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the gospels, that what the Lord looks at, he sees the heart, and what he values, people often despise. The world, the culture, and what the culture, what the world, what people often value, God often despises and says, that's not what I care about. What I care about is the heart. And in the heart of the Pharisees is they love money. And I agree with the commentators who say, as we look at now the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that their love of money is the context or background for Jesus telling this story, that he's aiming it in some ways at them as he has many of the parables, looking at them and saying, I'm, I'm going I'm to offer you a correction here or a, a gentle and sometimes not so gentle rebuke. So let's look at verse 19. There was a rich man, the next story that Jesus tells, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. The ESV puts it this way, he feasted sumptuously every day. Didn't just feast, but he feasted sumptuously, right? Luxuriously, and not just that, but every single day. Purple and fine linen, that was the clothing of royalty. The point being, this man's been trusted with a lot of wealth and he uses it on himself. The way I'll say it is this, every day is a celebration of, his, of himself and his wealth. Every day is a celebration of himself and his wealth. He's like the rich man uh, with, the, with the barns, the rich fool in the barns. He has an amazing crop. God entrusts him with so much more than he needs. But instead of looking for the needs around him that he could meet, he just builds bigger barns and says, right, now's the time for me to rest easy. I've got it made. I can spend it all on myself in luxury and comfort. And God says, you're a fool because this very night your life is demanded of you. Who will all of your stuff go to now? That's this man in a sense. He spends the money that God has entrusted him entirely on himself, his own pleasure, his own entertainment, while, as Jesus is about to tell us, a poor man, a poor beggar, lies at his very gate in need, and he does nothing. Verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. It's interesting, right? Uh, Lazarus, this is the only time in a parable that Jesus gives a name to one of the characters. Say, so why is that? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I do find it interesting that the name Lazarus means he who is helped by God. So already we're going to see one of the themes that I'm going to talk about is this idea of the great reversal, right? You're getting these hints already that I think there's a problem with the rich man, but with the poor man whose life seems horrible, his name is he who is helped by God. Like, wait, what? It doesn't seem like he's being helped by God because it says he's covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Dogs in their culture, by the way, were not known as like man's best friend. They're really more like coyotes. They, they roam the streets and they eat scraps. They're scavengers. So, so his life is horrible by many standards, by earthly standards. When we think about what is the good life, we would say, well, Lazarus doesn't have it. Look at verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, a lot of questions about what is Abraham's side. I'm taking that as another term for heaven. He's in the presence of God. Some people, um, some folks get really, uh, I think, maybe caught up a little bit or interested. Hey, what does every, every part of the parable has to correspond to some other reality? And uh, that may be, but I think sometimes we miss the point a little bit when we get lost in all the, 
maybe intricacies of the story, I think Jesus is telling the parable, and generally speaking, parables are told with with a singular point. I think this one has two. It's almost like a two-part parable, but I don't think the purpose is to get lost in the, well, what does that mean, and what does that correspond to, and can we allegorize it or overanalyze it? So if you're hoping for some sort of intricate, nuanced interpretation of every aspect of the story for me, you're going to be sorely disappointed. We're going to keep our attention focused on what I think, what I think are the main points of the story. And so he goes to Abraham's side, which I think is another way of saying he is in heaven. He's in the presence of God. And then look at what happens to the rich man. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. I'm not sure why would anyone would want to go from uh, Abraham's side down to where, La- where the rich man is, but he says the point is you, it's fixed and it's final, nor can anyone cross over there uh, from there to us. Verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham's reply here is rather stunning. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if, if someone goes to the, from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They'll turn around. They'll change their ways. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, which is definite foreshadowing, right? Luke is pointing us forward to that's exactly what's going to happen. Jesus himself is going to rise from the dead, and yet some still will not believe. Here are the two main things that I want to focus on with the rest of our time. Uh, One commentator uh, put this so succinctly, and and I think really nailed it. He said there are two main themes here, right? One, the theme of the great reversal, the great reversal, and number two, the theme of hardness of heart or spiritual blindness. And I would say infused into both of those is this concept of the love of money, where our hearts are centered, how we use the wealth that God has entrusted to us. And I think that's part of both of those. But the idea of the great reversal and the idea of the hardness of heart. Let's talk about the great reversal. This concept, the great reversal, you find it all through the scriptures, all through the gospels, for sure, all through the gospel of Luke. Let me just read to you a few of the things Jesus said along this, these lines. Many who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This great reversal of fortunes in the kingdom of God. Many who are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Luke 6, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. I mean, basically this parable is, is that. Go on. God will exalt those who humble themselves and humble those who exalt themselves. This theme of the reversal of fortunes in the kingdom of God that, hey, in life it seems like this person has it all made. But they actually have nothing. 
And it seems like in this life, this person's life is terrible. They have nothing, but actually they have everything. That's what's shocking about the parable, is it not? The one who had it all ends up in hell. The one who had nothing ends up in heaven. The rich guy who seemingly has everything actually has and eternally has nothing. And the guy who seemingly had nothing actually and eternally has everything in and because of Christ. By the way, uh, since we're, I mean, we talked about heaven and hell, I know it's popular in our culture to talk about heaven. Uh, studies show us, uh, statistics tell us that pretty much everybody believes in heaven and pretty much everybody believes they're going there. It's not popular to talk about or even to think about, frankly, the reality of hell, the reality of being eternally under the judgment of God because of our sin and separated from his presence. I think in some ways that's a good working definition of hell, being eternally under the judgment of God because of our sin and separated from his presence. I, frankly, I don't like thinking about it, and yet I think there's value in doing so. I think we would do well, let me say it this way, we would do well to ponder this, okay? If you're like, I just don't want to think about that, it's a mean. Jesus Christ, the most compassionate, gracious, loving human being who ever walked the earth, spoke more about hell and the reality of hell and money, the love of money and the connection between those two things than anybody else in the Bible. He talks about it a lot. And I think there's a reason for that because by recognizing the seriousness of what we're talking about and the seriousness of sin, it ultimately points us to the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us at the cross. I'll come back to that more at the end. For now, just suffice it to say, Heaven and hell are both treated as givens, as realities in the Bible. Both are taught explicitly in Jesus' teachings. And I think in this parable in particular, we at least see the realities that heaven and hell are real, they're final, and they're fixed. That there's no do-overs or going back. We have this life to live. It's appointed once for every person to die, and then comes the judgment. And so I want us to not shy away from that, but to lean into that and say, Lord, I want to think about my life and my eternity and my relationship to Christ. Now, I want to be clear about something when we talk about the great reversal. I think it would be possible if you read some of these statements without looking at the rest of the Scriptures and the rest of the New Testament, that you might think, uh, well, Basically, being poor automatically means you're going to heaven, and being rich automatically means you're going to hell. And I don't think that's the case. So again, what, what would have shocked the Jewish audience in some ways, and perhaps particularly the Pharisees, as it is, I think, aimed at them, is being rich was seen as a blessing. Having a lot of material wealth was seen as a blessing from God. Being poor and destitute, like Lazarus, was seen as a sign of God's disfavor. disfavor. So this is not how it was supposed to go. But it's not, the parable's not teaching because he was rich, he went to hell. And because Lazarus was poor, he went to heaven. That would, I think, obliterate all the rest of the New Testament teaching on salvation by grace through faith in Christ. It's not the amount of money you have that determines your eternal destiny. Yes, having a lot of money can be dangerous. Not because money in and of itself is evil, but because our hearts, are in, our hearts are inclined towards sin and having a lot of money, it's very easy for it to find its way into our hearts. 
It's very easy for us to begin to trust it. There's the deceitfulness of riches that the scriptures repeatedly talk about. When you have a lot, you begin to feel very comfortable and secure and think, my life is secure, and you forget where security is actually found. I heard it recently said that anyone's life, no matter how secure, no matter how good, anyone's life can change radically in a single phone call. You have cancer. I'm leaving you. Something has happened to your child, to your friend, to your spouse. Single phone call. Many things can come crashing down. But sometimes wealth can give this blanket of security, this feeling of my life is secure. On the flip side, yes, being poor can in some ways maybe cause you to see more clearly the fragility of life, the brokenness of the world, our need for God. But it's not that being poor gets you to heaven, and being rich sends you to hell. What the parable implies is that Lazarus had a relationship with God. His faith was in God, and so even though the circumstances of his life were terrible, he had the real treasure. Say it this way, he didn't have a dime to his name, and yet he was rich. Meanwhile, the parable shows us clearly that the rich man does not have a relationship with the Lord, and you're like, well, how do you know that? because of the way in which he used his wealth and neglected his neighbor. Now, I want to say this clearly. Some people have said so far as like, well, hey, the way in which you use your wealth determines your eternal destiny. I understand what's being said there, but I think it's probably more accurate to say it this way. The way you handle your wealth, the way you handle what God has entrusted you with reveals whether your faith is genuine or not. The way you handle money in this life reveals what it is that you value. Do you treasure Christ or money and material things? Do you serve God or money? It can't be both. And so the way that the rich man, right, he, he lives in luxury every day. The point of the parable, he's saying, look, he's got tons of wealth. He's got a man, his neighbor, who's a beggar at his gate. He could snap his fingers and give the man food and take care of him, and he does nothing because he's too busy throwing a party for himself. Comfort and pleasure and entertainment sumptuously every single day. Again, it's aimed at the Pharisees, lovers of money. It's all about the here and the now, pleasure in this life, and consequently, this life is as close to heaven as the rich man ever gets. Let me just pause there, bring some application maybe home uh, to you and to me. To those of us who are wealthy in this life, which by the way, living in America in the 21st century, globally and historically speaking, that means pretty much all of us, almost all of us, having more than we need materially speaking. Let me say again, it's not money that is inherently the problem, but the love of it, cherishing it, valuing it, and the things that it can buy, the stuff of God over God himself And the story is an illustration and a warning of that, a warning of what Jesus said elsewhere. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Recently, Morgan and I were having uh, dinner with another couple, and I was talking with the husband, and not uh, not believers, not from a Christian background. I think actually uh, he was from maybe a a Hindu background. And, And he was talking with me, And I found it so fascinating. Honestly, it reminded me of the times that Jesus said, I think this person's close. They're not far from the kingdom. He was sitting there talking to me about 
the world he had lived in and work, right, in, in IT and how he had worked so many hours at one point in time in his life and, and how he had switched jobs and kind of gotten out of the fast lane. And he, he said something that caught me. He said, man, uh, he was showing me some of the renovation they were doing in the basement and he was talking about the jobs and he said, I got to a point where I kind of realized what in the world is all this for? I'm putting in all these hours and yeah, I'm making a lot of money, but for what? It's like, so I can own three houses instead of two? <laughs> you know, two houses instead of one? And I, I just looked at him and, and said, man, I agree with you 100%. He said, in fact, Jesus said something very similar to that. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? This stuff is temporary. You can't take it with you. So don't build your life on it. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all money, building, cars, doesn't matter how nice your house is or how many houses you have or how nice your car is or how nice the clothes you wear, it cannot, those things cannot help you on the day when you come before the Lord. Your life is gonna end, my life is gonna end somehow. How did we live? Did we trust Christ? Do not put your hope, do not build your life on the financial kingdom because it's a house of cards. If you're wondering, do I love money? How do I know? Well, one way to know is to look at how you use it, as the parable would maybe point us in that direction. Am I, let me just ask you some diagnostic questions. Are you generous toward others? Do you tithe? Do you give it away regularly? Do you seek to meet the needs of others? Is your life dominated by money conversations? Do you worry about it? Does it fill your thoughts? Do you fret over it? Is it, what, is it what most of your arguments are about? Money, money, does it dominate your day-to-day -day thinking? Do you spend all of it on yourself or most of it on yourself, your own pleasure, your own entertainment while failing to be generous back to the Lord and to others? The way that you use it can show you what's going on in your heart. I heard it said one time, like smoke from the fire, right? You see a lot of the smoke, you know, but there's a fire here and it needs to be dealt with. Do not put your hope and your trust in money. And if you have, and you're seeing that right now, repent of it. Ask God to change your heart and say, Lord, from this day forward, I don't want to build my life on anything other than Christ. And make it a regular habit, by the way, of giving it away. It's a great way to break the hold it has in your life. To those of us who are poor, who maybe would say, Cal, I don't have the material things. I, I've not grown up in wealth. And I would expand this to say to those of us who are just in a lot of affliction. And the reality is for all of us who are following Jesus, Jesus tells us we're going to have trouble in this life. Affliction is going to come. And for some of us, though, we're maybe in a season where life is just particularly hard. Your following of Jesus has been hard. Life circumstances have been hard. I just want you to be comforted and encouraged this morning. I believe there is such comfort and encouragement for those of us following Christ in the midst of much affliction through this story and through the rest of the teaching of the New Testament to keep your eyes fixed on eternity. That our greatest comfort and greatest joy is not in the here and now, but in the then and there in Christ and in the day we get to see him face to face. Look at what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The cars, once again, the houses, the wealth, the material possessions, temporary. But the things that are unseen, faith, hope, love, Christ himself, we may not be able to see him yet. One day we will. And those things are eternal. That joy in him is eternal. Paul's words here, light and momentary. Like think about Paul's life. Shipwrecked, beaten, prison. And he's here like these light and momentary afflictions. Either he's insane or he's on to something. Either he's just flat out crazy and likes pain or he's got something so much better, a treasure so glorious, so wonderful, so rich and rare that it makes everything else pale in comparison. That there is no comparison, he says. It makes it not only worth it, the affliction in which we go through, but it makes it seem light and momentary by the comparison to the eternal weight of glory. And so this morning, I would just say to you, if you're a believer in Christ, you have that same treasure. You have it. It is Christ. He is the treasure, rich and rare. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes fixed on eternity. Don't lose heart in the midst of affliction and difficulty and pain because God's doing something. He doesn't waste it. And what lies ahead is so much better. Now, let's take the rest of our time, just a few minutes here, to talk about uh, the hardness of heart, and then we'll close out by coming back to Christ at the cross. Hardness of heart. Uh, this idea of spiritual blindness is really, I think, what the second part of the parable deals with. The rich man is in hell, uh, absurdly still trying to, commentators have noted this, still trying to order Lazarus around. <laughs> like, hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus to come down here, and okay, tell him to go there. But the second request is, he says, tell Lazarus to go to my brothers and warn them uh, to repent. I don't want them to end up here too. And, and Abraham says, well, they have the word of God. They've got the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. And we know Moses and the prophets point toward Christ. He says, let them read them and be warned. And the rich man says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. If Lazarus would come to them, if a dead man would show up and tell them, hey, hell is real. Well, that would really scare the hell out of them. Right? And then they would change. And, they, and, and Abraham's response is, no, it wouldn't, which is crazy. You're like, no, no, no. If someone showed up from the dead, well, of course, right? They'd be like, I'm totally changing my ways. But this is where we get to this idea of the hardness of heart, that the problem is not a lack of evidence, but it's a problem of the heart. But the problem is not, I just need some more information, but no, I need heart transformation. One pastor I was listening to this week said it so well. He said, look, it's not fear that's going to drive us away from hell into heaven. I think sometimes churches even, right, like, I, I, you know, I'm not saying God can't use it, but I think it's a little misguided, like these escape rooms, and it's like, we're going to scare the hell out of you, right? See enough flames, and you're like, I don't want to go there, so I'm going to change my ways. It's like, that's, that's behavior modification, it's not fear, the pastor said, but the love of Christ that transforms us. We need the love of Christ to come and give us a new heart because it's our hearts. That's where the problem is. Not in our behavior, not just in the lack of information, but a hardness of heart. 
a spiritual blindness. I, um, as a teenager, uh, my, uh, my mom, she was a, loved to listen to music, and my brother and I one day found these cassette tapes, right? Some of us who are younger, you're like, what are those, right? So, uh, I mean, I'm even at the place where I'm like, I didn't re- ever listen to them. I found them like, mom, what are these ar- ancient artifacts? And she's like, boys, those are cassette tapes. And we're like, who is on the front of it? And she's like, that's a band called Petra. Now, uh, again, for those of us who may be my age and younger, you're like, I, what is Petra, right? So a Christian rock band from the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And uh, I had no, I mean, 15-year-old Kale had no idea that such a thing existed, right? Like Christian rock band. So my brother and I popped this cassette tape into the player, I think maybe into my dad's uh, 1994 Chevy truck, right? Play it in there and, and our world is just opened, right? We're like, this is amazing, <laughs> And uh, we're listening to Beyond Belief and all these great songs, but there's one, right? There's one that the lyrics of it have always sort of stuck with me. And it says, that, it says this, Blue is the color of a heart so cold that will not bend when the story's told of the love of God for a sinful race, of the blood that flowed down Jesus' face. Blue is the color of a heart so cold that will not bend when the story's told. There's a problem inside of you and a problem inside of me. And it's not, again, just the lack of information or I need some behavioral tweaks. It's this problem called sin, a brokenness inside of me. John, the Apostle John, says it this way in 3 verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness. Loved darkness instead of light because their deeds we're evil. We need the love of God, the beauty of the gospel to pierce our hearts, for us to understand, for God to unblind our eyes, to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done at the cross, to transform our hearts, to give us new hearts, to take us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We say it a lot. Christianity is not a self-help program. It's not a, I just need to be a little better. It's meant I need to be made alive. I need to be transformed from the inside out. And that's a heart level thing. That's why Abraham says, no, even if someone rises from the dead, that's not going to convince them to say, hey, I need to, I'm going to change. Maybe it'll change some behavior for a while, but we've all experienced that, right? Tragedy happens. Crisis happens. You're like, God, I'll never do it again. And then the months go by and the years go by and you find yourself falling into those same patterns. No, we need something deeper. Heart level transformation that comes only from embracing the gospel. And I'll close with that. I said earlier that we want to look and ponder what it is that Jesus has done for us in in the light of the reality of heaven and hell. If hell is the eternal judgment of God, punishment for sin, and being separated from his presence, I want us to ponder what it is that Jesus has done for us at the cross. Tim Keller said it this way, and it's always stuck with me, that Jesus literally experienced hell so that you and I could experience heaven. You say, what do you mean? (laughs) Let me ask you this. What does a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago, being executed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, have to do with your life? The answer is nothing if he's just a random guy. (laughs) Then it's just a misguided attempt to show love. Let me show you how much I love you. I'll die. Well, what does that do? But that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible says is that Jesus is the very Son of God who stepped out of heaven 
took on flesh, incarnated himself. And the scriptures tell us that at the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he experienced separation from the presence of God. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that he literally takes on the wrath of God. He becomes sin for us and takes on the punishment of God against sin, the just wrath of God against sin. Jesus takes on the punishment of sin and the separation from God at the cross, experiences hell, takes that for us, that we might have heaven. It's the good news of the gospel. Yes, we're broken. The hard news of the gospel is we're broken and sinful, and there's a just God to whom we're accountable. Good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and that son came for you and me, took on flesh for you and me, went to the cross for you and me, stepped in the gap for you and for me, took that punishment for us and made a way for us to be saved through him. So let me finish just by asking that question. Have you trusted Christ with your life? Have you humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God? And have you received by faith, not by your works, not by your performance, but by saying, Lord, I know I'm broken. And Jesus, I believe you and you alone can save me and make me whole. That by the wounds on your back, I am healed because of what you did at the cross, because of your resurrection. Maybe today, maybe even right now, God has done that work in your life, lifted the blinders from your eyes to see your need for him. And I would invite you to take the step today to say, Jesus, make me new. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray for all of those right now who are um, taking that step, maybe for the first time to say, Jesus, I recognize I'm broken, make me new. God, will you guard them? Will you grow them? Will you, by your Holy Spirit, confirm to them that that step is real? They really are forgiven because of what Jesus has done, and they can walk forward in the newness of life, free and forgiven. God, for those of us who say we're Christians, will you help us to check our hearts? Lord, we should have total confidence in you. And also, God, guard us from being deceived. Guard us from the deceitfulness of riches. Help us to practice generosity, Lord, to remember. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom of God. To not get caught up on things that are sinking sand, but to build our life on the rock that is Christ. Father, help us to use what you've entrusted us for your glory, for your kingdom. God, we love you, and we thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We are going to uh, take communion together, and then we'll close out and sing together and be done for today. But. Uh, If you have the elements, you can get those. If you need to take a moment and go get those, go do that now. I want to encourage you also, I'm just going to give you a moment here uh, as I explain communion, just to pray, uh, to prepare your heart uh, to take this. We always say that if you're uh, a believer in Christ, whether you're a part of our church or joining us from another local church, we invite you to take communion together with us as a brother or sister. Uh, We also say 
that um, if you are joining us today and you're not a believer, we're so thrilled that you're listening in. Uh, thank you for being with us. This is probably the only thing we say to abstain from uh, is communion. When you take communion, you're saying, I am a believer in Christ, that he is mine and I am his. And so we would ask you to abstain from that because we don't want you to say something that's not true about yourself. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 24. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us, we take it together. Verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so just note that, that both in remembrance of the blood of Jesus shed for us for the forgiveness of sin and in anticipation of his return, we take it together. Father, once again, thank you uh, for communion and for the reminder of what it is you've done for us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.